Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here today with our guest. Uh, you, you may be familiar with his family, though you might not be familiar with him individually. Costi Hinn is a pastor and author. He's pastoring in Arizona, uh, author of several books, in t- and, and the latest one entitled God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. And you may wonder what, what motivated him to write a book on this subject. Uh, well, when I, th- I think when I t- say a little bit about his extended family, you, this might make a little bit more sense. Costi is the nephew of the, the fairly well-known televangelist Benny Hinn. Uh, and for, for several years, Costi was involved in the Benny Hinn evangelistic ministry before writing his, this, the book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel as a way of, I think, would it be fair to say, distancing yourself from the, what we might call the family business? Yeah, somewhat. I, I, I think, at least in my view, that that happened a little bit before with different articles. And um, I, I had a blog, and we were in our local church there in Irvine, uh, dealing with some of these issues because people would say, oh, Hen, uh, are you related to Benny? And so I would explain it and was doing a lot of that locally. And then uh, a publisher came and said, would you be willing to share the story and then um, maybe add some teaching in your pastor and going through seminary and all of that? And so I saw it, yeah, as a chance to tell the story, but also uh, equip people and really make sure that, uh, you know, people that were maybe didn't have a voice or they were out there in the middle of nowhere wondering if anyone ever has gone through the abuse they have or the confusion they have, that there are a lot of us. So whether we're Hinn, Jackson, Johnson, Smith, whatever, uh, there are a lot of people that have been exploited and hurt by the the so-called prosperity gospel. So yeah, I really just wanted to reach and equip and give people a tool for evangelism. Well, we, again, we appreciate you coming on with us. Uh, Costi is, is, has, has been a student at Talbot. Uh, in fact, we just we just uh, reconnected here because I had sat with him at dinner, at the introduction dinner, uh, when he was first starting his uh, theological education here at Talbot. Uh, but I think for, for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with uh, your uncle, uh, tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in that family and sort of what, what, was the, what were some of the primary messages that came out of the Benny Hinn ministry? Yeah. So growing up in it was full of comforts and privileges and also a lot of entitlement. Uh, I knew the Bible like a lot of pastor's kids growing up. I grew up watching Christian shows like any other kid. I've often joked even with friends now that, you know, I, I don't know if you guys remember these, but I watched, you know, Superbook and McGee and Me and the of Donut course. Man and all these great shows. And, you know, my kids watch them now. And so scripture memory was was on the tip of my tongue. I went to private Christian schools, played sports, et cetera. So your normal kid in a um, Pentecostal charismatic stream of evangelicalism and everything was was pretty, you know, copacetic in that regard. And then around 12 or 13, a lot of things started to change. My dad traveled a lot more with my uncle Benny, who uh, if you don't know who he is and you were to Google him, a guy in a white suit would come up and there'd there'd be a lot of theatrics and and what have you, and then certain teachings. And those teachings are associated with money. And 
seeing God as a sort of cosmic banker or a magic genie. You know, if you rub them right with enough faith or if you give the right offering or you chant the right phrases and, and finish those prayers with in Jesus name, then, you know, anything you ask in Jesus name, he'll do. And so uh, as we grew up in our teen years, my dad traveled a lot more with my uncle and he was a my dad was a pastor in Vancouver, British Columbia and started preaching a lot less on Sundays. Paychecks got bigger and bigger. My uncle left his local church in Orlando and began holding worldwide crusades. And so picture crowds filling the Honda Center, uh, picture crowds filling the uh, United Center in Chicago back then, or American Airlines Arena in Dallas, and even having hundreds of thousands of people overseas in stadiums, all trying to get healed. And I remember thinking one time after a trip, my dad had made a very large paycheck uh, from the trip in the tens of thousands of dollars. And I thought, you know, I can't wait to get a little older and stop riding on the coattails of this stuff, like a little sidekick on trips as a young man, but start leading in this thing. And so we rolled with the entourage. We had family vacations to Europe and Maui and everywhere else you can think of. We drove luxury cars, had two homes, one in Canada, nearly 10,000 square feet. We had a second home in San Juan Capistrano overlooking the Pacific. And so uh, you can imagine around that season, the news media started coming to our door and they wanted to know, as well as a lot of conservative evangelicals, how do you justify teaching what you teach, preaching what you preach, and then living like rock stars or celebrities? Uh, we were flying on a Gulfstream jet. We were staying in the nicest hotels in the world. Uh, when I was working in the ministry, we stayed in uh, the Burj Al Arab, the hotel in Dubai that shaped like a sail, $25,000 a night U.S. for the Royal Suite. We stayed in it. And that was our lifestyle. So people wanted to know, because this wasn't the old, you know, should you pay your pastor a, a, a decent salary debate? You know, the laborer is worthy of his wages or um, helping men in ministry ensure the lights are going to stay on while they're serving the church and they can focus on ministry, which, by the way, is a very common reality in a lot of places around the world. So th this wasn't that discussion. This was pretty airtight. You guys are living like LeBron James and, you know, a, a rock star band, but you're doing it all on donations. And then you're saying Jesus wants to do this for everyone. How does that reconcile with the Bible? How does that reconcile with Christian ethics? And so uh, it, it did not come without controversy. And it also came with a lot of confusion for me and other family members as we wrestled through a lot of those situations. You talked about for a while in the book ways that you kind of justified this in your mind. Could you walk us through some of those ways and then how you started to change your perspective of that over time? Yeah, so one of the justifications was that we were doing God's work and we were taking the healing, anointing power of God to the nations and we were uh, seeing them restored and healed and set free from the bondage of sickness and uh, demonic powers. And for doing that, we were living the blessed life and we were justified in that. Why would not God take care of his elite servants? Why would not God bless lavishly the greatest man of God in the world, which is what I was taught growing up? Uh, my father would often say, and we would talk about uh, the reality and the perspective. And my dad would say to me, do you realize your uncle, the man you know, you spend time with, you share a last name, is the greatest man of God on planet Earth right now? And and we would all be wowed, of course, and, and kind of drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. And so 
it's easy to justify, but also when other questions came, for example, I'd see different scenes in Crusades that almost reminded you of a, one of those war movies where everybody's injured and screaming and the camera's panning really quick, kind of like a Saving Private Ryan idea, and you're just seeing gore and, and horrific scenes everywhere. It was like that at one of the Crusades that we were at, and it was in India. And I remember crying after thinking, God, what is going on? Why, why doesn't this reconcile? We say it's your will to heal everybody. But we say that if you just have enough faith, God will do it. And if they give, you, these people came by the hundreds of thousands, sat in a field all night, and they, they just want you to move on their behalf. I was very confused. And the way that uh, I justified that particular issue is not something I'm proud of even now. Um, by the grace of God, I'm saved, and I, you know, His grace covers. But looking back, I'll tell you guys the honest truth. When you leave that arena or that field, you go to your hotel, you wake up in the morning, and your rear end hits the leather seat of a Gulfstream jet. And the you know Benzes and Bentleys and Maseratis pick you up in the entourage, and the uh, you know stewardess or steward on the plane brings you out your favorite meal without you even asking, and you're back off to Orange County to land there off Birch in the OC. You just you forget, and you start thinking, ah, you know what? God's sovereign, so now we would appeal to His sovereignty. He's got that; He'll make it okay. We're just going to go ahead and do our best and present the gospel and plant the seed of faith in those hearts. So that's really how we justified it. So Costi, let's let's go back just a little bit. Uh, some of the primary doctrine or teaching that came out of the of these crusades is what's known as the prosperity gospel, sometimes known as the health and wealth gospel. But some of our listeners might not be quite familiar with what's meant by the prosperity gospel. So what what exactly is taught? Uh, by the prosperity gospel, as your dad and your uncle taught that in these crusades. Yeah, so it fits into the category of Galatians one six through twelve, where Paul says, you know, something that's not a another that's another gospel is really not a gospel at all. So the the term that I would prefer anyway is prosperity theology, but that doesn't really have the same ring. And so prosperity gospel, literally prosperity good news or the good news about prosperity is this. Believing in Jesus is going to lead to being healthy, wealthy, and happy here on earth. Uh, it, it was always his will and always is that you be healed, that you be rich, that you have amazing relationships. Suffering is very taboo. Um, death is not something that we talked about. And the Bible passages that the prosperity gospel preachers will emphasize are fixated on how if you do the right works, if you have enough faith, if you give money, God's going to give you what you want. And that could be healing, promotion, salvation for a child, a baby you've been trying to conceive. And so I'll give you two quick verses that often get pulled out of context. Theologically, you've got Romans 10, 9, uh, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth and you'll be saved. Well, the concept is this. If you can confess your salvation with your mouth, and by faith, you can obtain salvation. Well, guess what? By faith, you can obtain everything else you need in life as well. And prosperity theology says Jesus on the cross definitely atoned for sin. Oh, he did that. But he also paid for sickness. He paid for death. All those tears that you've cried and all that pain you've experienced. And if you just have faith and you just receive the gift he's already paid for, uh, you're going to get it. And so... Uh, obviously, we understand that when we read the book of Revelation and we read just the New Testament at large, 
um, a lot of the promises and guarantees that are wrapped up in the atonement are sort of a now but not yet, you know, like our salvation. I'm guaranteed eternal life. I've got the assurance of salvation. I see fruit in my life and I'm walking with the Lord. As I persevere and go on to the end and, and I die one day, um, I, I have to die. It's appointed to a man once to die. So uh, I die. And then all those other promises are unleashed. The abundant life of heaven, the eternal glory, Christ as the ultimate treasure, on and on and on. Um, actually, when you read the New Testament, we're, we're guaranteed suffering and persecution more than we are health and wealth. And last thing I'll say on that would be you know, the reminder of balance here. First Timothy 6, Paul speaking to Timothy says, you know, instruct the rich to be rich in good works, not fixing their hope here on earth or in their, their stuff, basically, if I were paraphrasing, um, but to fix their hope on heaven, be generous, ready to share. So there's rich people in the church. Wealth is not a sin. It's a responsibility. So we want to use it well. But the gospel is not a get rich plan. It's a get saved plan. And so that's what we want to be focused on when we're preaching faithfully. So to make sure I understand, you're not saying this idea of prosperity theology is just something Christians can agree to disagree over, but it gets to the heart of the gospel itself and compromises it. If so, why is, proser- why is prosperity theology so dangerous? Well, first, it demeans the character of God. God is good even when you're sick, even when you don't get healed. Even when you're struggling, working two jobs, trying to make ends meet, even if you are experiencing a season where you're not able to conceive a child, uh, when your grades are good, when your grades are bad, when you're buried in student loan debt and when you're, you know, paying it off, God is always good. It's who he is. And the prosperity gospel emphasizes all that he can do. And it also takes the Bible, very clear passages that aren't even debated, really, uh, and makes them mean something they were never intended to mean. So now we're into, I think, an authority of Scripture issue and taking the Bible and God's holy, inerrant, precious word and using it as a means to our own end. Uh, You have the demeaning of Christ. Uh, Some of these movements and prosperity gospel circles are starting to teach uh, what Stephen J. Wellam explains in, in a great book. You guys probably read it in your systematic theology classes called God Incarnate. It's about Jesus. Uh, the term they're using or he uses is ontological canonic Christology, which is this in kind of simple terms, that Jesus came to earth, laid aside his divinity, and then did all his stuff as just a man in right relationship with God to model for us how we can uh, do miracles, how we can live a supernatural life. He became poor so we could become rich, so we could tap into all the riches of heaven now. And he was really just a stencil for us. So you can see It just continues to go down the line. It's man-centered, and it's driving people not towards the cross, not towards repentance, not towards faith in Christ for who he is, but into a transactional and works-based relationship with a God that is barely recognizable, who is not really sovereign. We're, We're sovereign. We're the puppet masters. He's kind of the puppet. And our faith and our money and our big declarations make him do what we want. I don't know about you guys, but that just does not square with the God of the Bible. Costi, let me go back to your your own personal story just for a moment. Um, when did you first start to become disillusioned uh, and reevaluate the prosperity theology that your family was teaching? Um, and I'm really curious to know how your family started to react when you started to distance yourself from this. Well, I was— 
coming out of high school and uh, my uncle had asked me to work with him and my family had encouraged it. And I really believed that if I put a pause on college and on baseball, which I played at the time, uh, then God would bless me and he would give me my desire to play professionally and all of that stuff. And so uh, I planted a seed, quote unquote, of faith in my uncle's ministry. And I worked for him and took a year and a half off school, almost two years. And so I lived there in Dana Point and uh, drove an Escalade and lived the high life. I even lived with my uncle for a bit. And uh, what I ended up doing was uh, going through that season, seeing all that, and then going to Saddleback College first. And I played baseball there and got first few years of college done with. And then I went to Dallas Baptist University. I ended up in Texas. Uh, It's a good D1 school. And Coach Hefner, the man there, starts talking to me about different things. And I drove a Hummer. You can picture, you know, rolling onto an SBC campus and I'm driving a Hummer. I got a $10,000 watch. I've got a big, the H2s on 22s and it's just TVs in the headrests. And I mean, not a recipe for, for disaster at all. So I roll onto this Baptist campus and coach just started to give me the gospel. Uh, He started to talk to me about the sovereignty of God. And one day he told us when there was a scout in the stands, you know, guys, relax. God is sovereign. Everybody was really uptight. He quoted Proverbs 21.1. He said, uh, the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And then he said something. God controls kings. He controls scouts. He's got the world in his hand. Boys, don't worry about the future. God's in control. He's sovereign. You just go out and control what you can control, which is today. Play the game hard. Go out there and have fun. So I'm sitting there on the field thinking in my mind, what is this guy talking about? sovereignty, God's in control, we do nothing. This sounds like crazy stuff. Um, and so I remember really arrogantly thinking this, you know, he coached, I love him, but he drives a, a white Camry, um, you know, wears khaki pants and, and those old man runners every day to practice. And we're, I'm driving a 80, 90, $100,000 car. Uh, by the time all the customizations are done, I got a $10,000 watch in my locker and I'm thinking, coach, I know about sovereignty. I know about getting God to do what I want. So, you know, his cute little platitude from the book of Proverbs didn't really land. But I'll tell you guys what, a few years later, that was a crack in the dam that burst in my life. And I later met a girl after I graduated. She was from the Inland Empire, uh, Christine, and she was an Azusa grad, very young in her faith and understanding of God. And I know you guys forgive her for not going to Biola, but in the end... (laughs) She's excused. um, Yeah. She drove a Yaris, uh, was blue collar, putting herself through that school, and very different. And she started to question things. So my family thought, well, we need to fix this girl if she's going to marry in. And so uh, she went through a season of spiritual abuse. And one thing in particular that... uh, no matter what your theological background, a lot of people understand and agree that uh, you don't have to speak in tongues or operate in certain gifts of the Spirit to be saved. They're not uh, evidence of salvation so much as they are the outworkings of uh, the Spirit of God through the life of a saved individual. Well, she was told, no tongues, no conversion. You don't have the Spirit, you're not marrying Costi. And so she tried so hard uh, to speak in tongues. Well, one day we came upon 1 Corinthians twelve thirty. And we're going through this tough season. And uh, I look and there's Paul saying, you know, not all, do they? Not everyone is going to operate in the same gifts. 
not everyone has to operate in the same gifts. And so uh, sure enough, clear as day there it was, and we started to cry and, and figure out what else we needed to learn. So that started a split in the family. And then I ended up getting a, an opportunity to serve at a church in Tustin. And uh, while I was there, I have to preach a sermon. Sermon is the healing at the pool of Bethesda. I figure I got it nailed because I'm a hen. Preaching on healing is low-hanging fruit. And as I'm studying, my pastor, who became a dear mentor, uh, threw me a commentary. I'd never used one, guys. Never. Not in one time in my life. So I pull this commentary open after making observations of the passage. And I'm seeing things for the first time, even before opening the commentary, which is why I opened it. And I see Jesus targets one guy out of a multitude in John 5, 1 through 17. Then he heals the man immediately. And then he heals him on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees get all bent out of shape. And they tell the guy, you know, who told you you can pick up your pallet and walk? And he goes, the guy who healed me. And then John records something very interesting and says he didn't know who Jesus was. So I look up the word and I'm thinking this, like he didn't even perceive who Jesus was. Well, how did he have enough faith if he didn't even know the guy? So I'm confused as ever. I open up this commentary and the commentator unpacks the passage and points to different other keys and then says this, God is sovereign in healing. He is a healer, uh, but you can't turn Jesus's ministry into a formula. He starts going on about the cruel lies of faith healers today, that the people who fail to get healed are guilty of negative confessions or unbelief, and that here is a man with no faith at all, let alone knowing Jesus, who Jesus healed. And there's other examples where people came to Jesus with faith and he's moved with compassion. So what's the, the takeaway there is you can't swing to either extreme. You must live in the balanced tension of God is sovereign. Jesus is a sovereign healer. We ask, we request, and then he moves according to his will and we trust and obey. So I'm wrecked. I ball my eyes out. Um, I realize that I probably believe other things that are not right. and so. Uh, long story shorter, I go to my pastor's office. I tell him everything that was in my mind and my heart. And he, so he strips my title. I preach the sermon on Sunday and then he strips my title and, uh, I become pastor in training. I end up starting shortly after taking some online classes through this like non-accredited, just like online resource center. And then he tells me, listen, you, so you're getting kind of the, the beginnings here, but you need to go to real seminary. And so I'm like, okay. So I end up at Talbot and I'm taking Greek and learning and loving it. And then my church comes and says, hey, driving two days a week and just leaving the office to go enjoy yourself there in La Mirada isn't going to fly because we need you to do more. Um, can you transition to more of a hybrid program? <laughs> and so um, I did. And seven years later, uh, thankful to the Lord, graduated. Um, and then also... Uh, have just seen the Lord work through the situation, and we're just trying to be faithful to the truth. Well, your story is just so fascinating and insightful and instructive on so many levels. We we have a couple questions for you, but now that you have theological training, you've separated yourself from the prosperity gospel pretty clearly, do you look back and say, you know what, there really is still some good in that? Like some of the accounts of healing, some people have sworn to me it really happened— or do you think those are just not true at all? Like with this theological training where you where you are, how do you look back on some of those events and say, yeah, maybe God did heal some people in spite of it? What's your take of that? Yeah, I I want to move beyond uh, the, the weeds, so to speak, in these 
when I'm analyzing these situations as best as I can as a human being. So what I do, um, guys, is I end up just moving to God and his people. That's kind of the view I take and go, could God and does God reach down and intervene in beautiful ways on behalf of, uh, you know, that's one of his, that's, that's his sheep there in, in a crusade. And so God can supersede and transcend any false teacher and any faith healer. So to say that anything happening in an arena, um, any person's experience is not valid because they had it at a, um, a healing crusade where my uncle was there is actually to elevate the authority and power of that false teacher or that faith healer above God's. God can move at any time. He's the creator of every human life and he is, he's holding human hearts in his hands. And so where I landed after theological training and, you know, allowing God's word to be the filter for my experiences, not the other way around, um, I landed very similar to where Talbot has landed. Uh, I view uh, healing as for today, God does heal. He is a supernatural God, the greatest miracle of all, no doubt being healing for the soul, salvation, but we ought to pray and he does heal and he does do great things, but we're praying like Jesus did in the garden, not my will, but yours be done, trusting him in the midst of trial. And then beyond that, I would say, um, I see a a more of a non-normative pattern where uh, we don't have, you know, Peter and Paul kind of coming to all our churches and just healing people left and right. Um, they're not clearing hospitals and they're not going around saying silver and gold have I none, that which I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ rise and walk. We're not seeing that similarity exactly like the New Testament picture. And so um, I would be of the position that Christians going around wielding signs and wonders and just doing miracles at will in hospitals or whatever, it would be the non-normative pattern. Um, I don't like some of the extremes that different scholars go to. Um, I prefer to live in balance and just let God's word do the talking. And so if it matches scripture, I'm looking at it through the lens of scripture. If it doesn't, I'm going to look with uh, a cautious lens and I'm going to simply say, uh, you know, I can't discredit the experience, although I can't affirm it because I wasn't there. So I want to be really fair. I'm a pastor. I'm not a professor, parenthesis yet, maybe one day. Um, it'd be a joy as I grow older a bit to get involved in seminaries and different places to train. But overall, I'm a pastor, so I'm I'm on the ground floor with people working this out. They're not going to work on Monday, and you know, doing the taxes for some person at you know H and R Block, make or break moment. Gosh, if I don't figure out this big cessationism debate, I. I'm going to get fired from H&R Block. These precious people are just <laughs> trying to go and live the Christian life. So that's where I'm at. I'm walking with people through that, really trying to point them to God's word as the standard. And then I think there's other forums for those other kind of discussions, if that makes sense. That does. And I think that's a really healthy, balanced view of how we need to do this. Costney, my, my understanding, and I'm not exactly sure where I've gotten this from, but I've heard sort of through the theological grapevines is that your uncle is backing away a bit from the prosperity theology that's been so characteristic of his ministry for a long time. I guess my first question is, is that true? And if so, why, why do you think that's the case? So, yeah, he came out with a statement recently uh, saying that he was sick and tired of it and he thinks God is, putting numbers to the miraculous. In other words, give $1,000 tonight, we would say that. There's an anointing here. There's a an $1,000 anointing. Or there's an anointing for conception. 
God wants to give, how many of you, and we'll say, raise your hand, how many of you are believing God for a baby? Raise your hand. You'll get people to raise their hands. How many of you know someone, because so you, you want to get more hands, so you need to manipulate the room. How many of you know someone who's believing God for that? And now you got most of the room lifting their hands because everybody knows somebody who maybe is trying or, or whatnot. And so from there, you say, you know, I believe that God has an anointing tonight, but he wants you to give a $1,000 seed, and you can make a miracle happen with your money. Money is the thing that you love the most. If you'll give that up, God will give you what you want. So that's the, the delivery. He repudiated that and said uh, he won't do that anymore. And so I applauded that. I sent him a message right away. I said, I'm so proud of you. Thank you. I'm so excited you took steps in the right direction. And then I'll be honest with you guys, the rest of my message to him, I said, uh, I pray and encourage you to keep going down uh, this road and be willing to pay the price and count the cost and follow Christ no matter what. I told him I'd be the first one at his door, no matter what friends I lose or what people think, I don't care. Um, if Zacchaeus is having his moment, I want to go have dinner with him. I want to be right there when he comes out of the tree. So there's that. The other side to it, though, is there's been some stalling on moving further than that statement. And so um, there's a lot of bad press about the prosperity gospel right now. There's a lot of tension with it. And uh, some of it can get political and real sticky. And so we got to be really careful um, making, you know, jumping to conclusions about things. But overall, my prayer is that it's full repentance. It's not just remorse because of bad press or family pressure. And that all out repentance and becoming accountable to faithful leaders, you know, all in on Jesus, no matter what the cost, Paul the Apostle and Zacchaeus style is what this turns into, even if it means taking a break from ministry. So that's where I'm at now. That's how I would encourage him and, and how I talk with family. I love him. I pray for him often. But uh, my dad said it best when I asked him not long ago, uh, you know, where, where are things at? Because they talked, they're pretty close, and, and he would open up to him more than me or others right now. And uh, my dad just, he used an Arabic phrase, which is shway shway. And our family speaks Arabic, and so um, I understand a good bit. And he says, just shway shway. And shway shway means just easy, easy. Take it easy. Just go slow. Let him go through a process. Discern and test. Examine. Examine yourself. Examine him. Just wait and see and let God do his work, and we'll see if it's genuine. And I thought that was good wisdom. So um, I'm almost 36 years old this year, but I'm still entrapped when my father spits good wisdom. I, I'm, I can't say anything to that. I just... I am going to shway shway and take it easy and just let time do the heavy lifting. Well, I think I think that's okay to uh, take good wisdom from your father. Uh, you know, it, it, in terms of what you've described already, as long as it's consistent with what the Bible's teaching and uh, consistent with Scripture. One one last question, Costi. Uh, in one in one sentence, what can, what can we learn from your journey, sort of in and out of the prosperity theology movement? Uh, I've said it before, so it's easy to remember. If you have everything, but you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. And if you have nothing, but you have Jesus, you have everything. So he's worth it. Wow, that's that's really well put. That's, that's a drop the mic moment. Uh, so we, we, this is such a good way to, to end this. And we, Costi, we so appreciate uh, the journey that you've had, the, the, your your faithfulness to Christ as you've come out of the prosperity theology movement, uh, your desire to see you know everything you do framed by faithfulness to Scripture, uh, 
And so we, we wish you all the best as you continue to pastor, continue to be faithful. Uh, you know, we pray for your family, as I'm sure you do, uh, and long to see them come back to the same kind of biblical faithfulness that you're experiencing in your own life. So, my, again, many thanks for coming on with us. It's a fascinating story, uh, and I think for, for your life, there's still a lot of the story that's still left to be written. So we look forward to seeing what God will do in the future through your own ministry and and how he will use the background that you've had to increase your impact for Christ. So thanks again for coming on with us. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Costi Hinn, and his book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. And to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and please consider sharing it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything. Everything.